there are some people in my life that I owe a debt to um, that helped me to get where I am today. Um, I heard a, a pastor once say um, that he is a debtor. Um, that there are people in his life that he is standing on the shoulders of that helped him to get to where he is and to become who he is. And if it wasn't for their speaking into their life, if it wasn't for their prayers, if it wasn't for them standing in the gap, his life and, and my life and all of our lives could look significantly different. Um, I think of my youth pastor in high school, Andy Stevenson, and um, the way he loves me and cared for me and spoke into my life and saw a little glimmer, a little flash of potential for ministry and said, Jared, I want to help nurture this in you. I want to bless you. I want to encourage you. I want to meet with you, and I want to see what God's doing in your life. Think of Dan Craig, who is a worship pastor at a small church in Donovan, Missouri. It's like just like one of those little black dots. You know, on the map, it's like 1,800 people out in the middle of nowhere. And Dan, um, when I had the privilege of working with him, taught me what it was like to be a good dad, and to love his kids, um, to care for his spouse, and, and, and to be a godly example of how to really love a church and to love people. I think of um, Steve Cottom, a... Uh, a dear friend of mine in Oklahoma City who, who took me under his wing for the last few years and just really blessed me and, and encouraged me in my relationship with my wife. And, and Steve Childs, who's been my pastor for the last 10 years, and will have a significant influence in my ministry um, as long as I'm in ministry. For Robin Wood, and I could go on and on and mention name after name. And as I'm doing that, you're probably beginning to think about those people in your life who stood in the gap for you cared for you, who loved you, who spoke truth and hope and, 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 and helped you to see God's direction in your life. And that's what we're talking about today. We're, uh, we're in the story of Abraham, um, and this is like the good part, Genesis chapter 18. And I say the good part in the sense that we've been waiting for God to change Abram's name to Abraham, and he's finally doing it. So me continually messing it up week after week and going back and forth, I don't have to worry about that anymore. Because in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, God meets with Abram, and he changes his name to Abraham. And he says, here's the deal, Abram, Abraham. Um, that promise that I made you years ago about you being a father of a great descendants and them being more numerous than the stars, this is about to happen. In one year from today, you're going to have a son, and we're going to go down on this journey that I've been promising you forever. And in and, and Genesis chapter 18, it's a really amazing story. You need to take out your Bibles this week and read it, um, because God actually visits Abraham in the flesh, and he brings two messengers with him, and it's a very, very powerful and intimate and encouraging moment where God just says, man, everything that you've been holding on to, this is about to happen. And God does the good thing of changing Sarai's name to Sarah, because who likes to say Sarai over and over and over again? So he changes her name to Sarah. And when Sarah hears this promise from God, she laughs. And God says, what is, what is your wife laughing about? You know, I, I know she thinks she's too old for this, and she is in her 90s. I mean, that's pretty old to be having kids, right? But this is going down. This is happening. You're going to be a father. So there's this crazy 
encouraging, amazing moment where God is telling Abraham that everything I've promised you is about to happen. And then God says this. God says, I wonder, I wonder if Abraham can handle what I'm about to do. I wonder if he can handle what I'm about to tell him. That's such an interesting thing for God to say. He's about to do something, and he's trying to bring Abraham in on the process. He wants Abraham to know about the decision that he's about to make. And he says this to Abraham. He says, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, and they've become exceedingly wicked. Unbelievably wicked. And they're so bad, and they're so wicked, that, that I'm going to destroy both cities. They can't be here on this earth any longer. And listen to how Abraham responds. This is Genesis chapter 18. It says, And Abraham approached him, approached the Lord. This is God. He said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if? What if there are only 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? This is the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. This is then Abraham spoke up again. He says, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is Five less than 50. 45. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? He says, if I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. He says, what if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but but let me speak. What if only 30? What if 30 can be found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned, returned home. It's Genesis chapter 18, 23-33. You see, God invites us into various levels of, of, of involvement with him. And, and, and here they are. The first one is this. The first level of involvement that God invites us to is the level of fellowship. And what that means is that we're invited to know him. You know, even though our arms are too short to knock on the door of heaven and open up and to see God for ourselves, it is so interesting that the creator of heaven and earth, that who spoke all of this to existence, is larger than we could ever and more powerful than we could ever dream or imagine, that that God decided to make himself known to us. In just a few months, we're coming upon Christmas, right? And in Christmas, we celebrate. How many of you ready for that? Anybody already seeing the Christmas ornaments and stuff in Walmart? It's like, we haven't even got to Halloween yet, and we're already there. That's because people are excited about it. We're excited about Christmas. Christmas is, is, is that moment where we celebrate God 
placing himself in the form of the man in Jesus so that we might know who he is. He said, I don't want you to be confused about who I am. I don't want you to be confused about my nature and, 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 and what I think and how I act and what I'm all about. And so, so I'm going to make it really clear to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you so that you can know me. So you can know my heart. So you can know my passion. So you can know what I love and who I'm about and what I want to do in this world. And here's the thing. Is that for many of us, this is as far as we go. We believe in God. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God and and we just leave it there. But the truth is that God wants something deeper in us. And that's the second level involvement. And that's discipleship. In discipleship, we're invited to become like Him. See, when we confess our need for forgiveness, when we realize that we need a Savior, that we need to be made right with God, God does something miraculous in that, that he forgives us for who we are and what we've done. He cleanses us and makes us new and right. And then he does this miraculous thing. He places a bit of himself in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. You see, he becomes Lord of our lives and he becomes a part of us. And as we submit to him and as we surrender our life to him, we become more like. Paul talked about it this way. He, or in the New Testament, he, he said that you are Christians. That word Christian literally means little Christ. That's what word Christian actually means. It means little Jesus. That when you call yourself a follower of Jesus, it's, it's that there are little Jesuses running around this world, and that's what you are. Paul said in Corinthians that we're constantly being changed into his likeness with the ever-increasing glory. That as we surrender our life to him, as we yield who we are, he changes us to become like him. We act the way he acts. We talk the way he talks. We love the way he loves. We show grace the way he shows grace. We show mercy the way he shows mercy. Because we become like Jesus because of the power of his Holy Spirit in us. So there's fellowship where we know him. There's a deeper step of discipleship where we become like him. And then there's this one called partnership. And in partnership, it's really crazy that God actually invites us to assist him in his work on this earth. I mean, think about that. That God is literally inviting us in all of our messiness and all of our mistakes and all of our problems that we have. God is inviting us to help bring about his will and his glory in this world. That is crazy amazing. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, life is like a play where the overarching storyline has already been written. That that we have come from God and ultimately we're going to return to God, but the script God allows the players to write. That the end and the beginning is already known, but God gives us the ability to write our own scripts in this world. How do we do that? We do that two ways. One is by the choices we make, right? The choices we make every single day have the ability to write 
to make a difference in this world. A few, a few months ago, um, was it in late July, August, we collected school supplies for, um, for a, a homeless shelter for women in an abuse situation. Um, there were a lot of kids there, and so we collected you know, books and paper and pens and backpacks and all this cool stuff to give to these kids. And here's the deal. If we didn't do that, they wouldn't have that unless someone else listened to the heart of God and did it too. Every year in Oklahoma City, during the, during the winter, right before Christmas, we'd collect, it gets really bitter cold with that wind blowing through Oklahoma. Um, we would collect coats and food for, for families, for needy families in a Title I school. And, um, and the reason we did that is because if we didn't provide those things, they wouldn't get those things. So we have a choice. We have a choice to do good. We have a choice to make a difference. And when we choose, we get to partner with God. So, so we do it, one, through choice. And the other way that we get to partner with God is through prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is people like me and you having the ability through encouragement to move God to action. And that's what's happening here with Abraham. He's standing before God. And he's saying, God, I know you say Sodom and Gomorrah need to be destroyed, but, but if there's only 50 good people, will you please just spare the city? If there's only 45, if there's only 40, if there's only 30, if there's only 20, if there's only 10, God, if you can just find 10 people, would you be willing to, to pull your hand of wrath away from them and show them mercy? But what does God say? He says, Abraham, for you... I'll do that if I can find 10. See, Abraham had a heart that moved God. What does that heart look like? A couple thoughts. One, a heart that moves God is a humble heart. The humble heart moves God. Isaiah 57, 15 says this. It says, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. You see, Abraham is like the patriarch of our faith, of, of the Jewish people. And, and, and what's so amazing about this is that he didn't come to God on, on his own credentials. He didn't say, hey, God, I mean, you've made me into this, this person. You say you're going to do this for me. I must be something special. And because I'm something special, I'm asking you to do this. That's not how he went. He came to him and he said, God, I realize I'm, I'm just dust and ashes. Nobody. I don't deserve to talk to you. But if you would just listen. See, it's a humble heart that's a rare heart in our world today. A humble heart is a rare heart in our world today. It's a funny story. A few years ago, the governor of Massachusetts, his name is Christian Herder, um, was campaigning. I was getting ready to election time. You know how fun election times are. Aren't you just loving this time of year? Woohoo! Don't even get me started. Um, but he was campaigning in Massachusetts, and uh, he was doing all the hugs and kisses, and he was at a large church. And after the church was over, they were having a potluck. And um, I guess they're not illegal in Massachusetts because the governor was there, right? And so he's having this potluck in, um, in Massachusetts and at this church, and he was really hungry. I guess the hugging and the kissing and the, you know, the doing all that stuff just makes you really hungry. And uh, so he was going through the line, and he got to this place where this woman was, was giving out chicken, fried chicken. 
And uh, she put a piece of chicken on his plate, and he was really hungry. And so he looked at her and he said, ma'am, would it be okay if I had two? And she said, I'm really sorry, sir. Um, You can only have one piece right now. And then once everybody goes through the line, if there's extra, you can come back and get a second piece. And I guess he must have been really hungry because he decided to kind of flex his political muscle a little bit. And he said, excuse me, ma'am. He leaned in really close. I guess he didn't want anybody else to hear. He said, excuse me, but I don't think you know who I am. I'm the governor of Massachusetts, and I would like two pieces of chicken, please. And that lady, a little old lady, leaned in a little bit further, and she said, honey, I don't think you know who I am. I'm the lady who dispenses chicken, and you can only get one. Sometimes... Sometimes we get into this frame of mind, don't we, where we think we can command God to do what we want. But the truth is, we're nothing but ashes. We're nothing but dust. And we're even lucky to just just hear his voice to begin with. How many of your parents are teenagers or have had teenagers? Yeah, or going to have teenagers one day, right? What if they came to you and they said, they're turning 16. They said, Mom, Dad, I am 16 years old, and every single one of my friends has a car, and I demand that you provide a car for me today. Now, how many of you would that turn your heart toward their favor, and you would go out and get them a car immediately? Anybody? No. What if they came, came to you and they said, Mom, Dad, I didn't ask you to bring me into this world, but you did, and it's your responsibility to take care of me. And every single one of my friends has a car, and their parents are taking care of them, so I want you to get me a car, and it better be a good one. How many of you would be turned by that, by that voice, by that way? Oh, what if you know, get a beat down? What if they said this? What if they said, Mom, Dad, I've, uh, I pulled out my calculator today, and I did a few calculations. You see, I've been doing chores since I was 10 years old, and, um, and I kept tally of how many times I unloaded the dishwasher and how many times um, I uh, took out the trash and how many times I mowed the yard and how many times I pulled the weed. And by my generous calculations of only asking for minimum wage, by the way, which I think I'm a little bit better than that, I think at this point you owe me about $12,000 and I would appreciate if you would just spend that money on buying me a new car. Would anybody be swayed by that? What if they said this? What if they said, Mom, Dad, Look, let's just be real. You're lucky to have me. Do you know how many parents in this world would kill to have a kid like this? I think it would be really good for you to buy me a car. Or maybe another parent will have the opportunity to love me. It's not going to happen. But what if they came to you? They fell on your, before you on their knees and they said, Oh, mother and father. Hallowed, most holy is your name. You are so good. You've been such a fantastic mom and dad. I am lucky to carry your name as your kid. And I mean, from the bottom of my heart, how grateful and how thankful I am for how you provide for me. Could you please, in all of your mercy and grace, spare me the opportunity or give me the opportunity to drive a vehicle when I turn 16? Now, let's be honest. That's probably not going to do it, so don't get your hopes up, teenagers. Um, But I would say that last one will get you a little bit further than the first few. Because the truth is, is that we don't get moved by loud and demanding people. 
They don't inspire us to turn our hearts toward them. But the humble, the humble move us. And the humble move God. Here's a second thought. Not only do the humble, the humble heart moves God, but the persistent heart moves God. We all kind of chuckled when we were listening to Abraham. You know, say, what if there's 50? What if there's 45? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? But, but as I pictured that, I, I mean, sometimes I, I try to picture what's really happening here, and I could almost see Abraham just grabbing the coat of God and just saying, God, please, if there's only 40, if there's only 30, if there's only 20, I mean, he had already started. He was willing to go all the way. He wouldn't let go. Paul says this in Ephesians 6.18. Look in your notes. He says, pray in the Spirit at all times on every occasion. Read this next part with me. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray in Luke chapter 18. And he says, um, he says prayer is like a widow who goes before an unjust judge and constantly implores him, knocking on his door repeatedly over and over and over again. Until he turns, until she turns his ear towards his cry, and he gives in to her request. And he says, if an unjust judge who doesn't care a lick about this woman is willing to do that, how much does a just God who loves you going to listen to your heart? See, the thing is, is that often when we approach God in prayer, we just mention it, and then we just go on to something. God says there's some sort of power that happens in persistence when we go to God over and over and over God, over again. You say, but, but Jerry, God doesn't forget, so why do I have to keep doing it? Why do I have to say it a hundred times if he remembers the first time? And I would say maybe, maybe it's not about God remembering, but it's about us, about us continually going back to him. What about it? if it's really about us over and over and over again, grabbing onto his cloak and staying close to him. You see, it's the persistent heart that moves the heart of God. Here's a third thought. It's the unselfish heart that moves God. You see, Abraham wasn't pleading for himself. As a matter of fact, it may not have been a bad thing for him if Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. I mean, it'd be more land for him, for his people, for for his family to expand. But, but there was somebody there in Sodom that he cared for. There was somebody there in his nephew Lot that he loved deeply and those lost souls in Sodom and Gomorrah. And here's the truth. For many of us, our faith walk with God is composed of prayers that are all about us. We say things like, God bless me, bless my job, bless my family, bless my finances. And those are all really important prayers. But it's me, me, me. And that's okay. But he's our father, because he's our father and he wants us to share our needs with him. But here's the deal, is that there's something that happens supernaturally that happens in the heart of God when we come to him on behalf of other people. Why? Because that's God's heart. God's heart is unselfish. And when we come to him unselfishly, it turns his heart towards others. A friend of mine told me a story about his son, Ben. It was Christmas, and Ben was like in the fourth or fifth grade, and he was spending some time over at a friend's house. And um, just a few weeks away, and Ben's Christmas tree at their house was already loaded. 
I mean, they did Christmas, and they had gifts all over the place. And he was at his friend's house, and his friend had this little dinky tree, and it had very few gifts. And Ben knew that his friend was kind of poor, and he wasn't going to get much, and he, he really loved it. Until so that night when he got home, he went to his dad, and he said, Dad, he said, Dad, would it be okay if, um, if I gave up some of my gifts and you gave them to my friend? He's not going to have a good Christmas, and I always have a good Christmas. What if, what if I give him some of my stuff? And Steve said that, man, when he heard his boy ask that question, he said, not only did I want to take care of his friend, but I wanted to take care of him. When I saw his heart and how much he loved and was generous and giving to others, man, I just wanted to get him everything he ever wanted. And it's like that with us and God. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? If it does, you get God. In 1 Kings chapter 3, um, Solomon is now king of Israel. And uh, he has this, he's just built the temple, and they're offering sacrifices in it, and, um, and they're worshiping the Lord in the temple. And he has this dream where God approaches him, and he says, um, Solomon, you can ask for anything, and I'll give it to you. Um, and Solomon could have. He could have asked for fame. He could ask for riches. He could have asked for all the land and all the world and all the gold. He could have asked for anything, and God would have granted it to him. But he didn't. Um, he asked for wisdom. And he said, "He said, Lord, I, I feel. Read it in First Kings chapter three this week." He said, "He said, I feel like I'm just a kid. So God, just give me wisdom on how to lead your people well. You can ask for anything." I mean, what would you ask for if God said, you can have anything, and I'll give it to you? And listen to how God responds in 1 Kings chapter 3. He says, so God replied, because you've asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for long life or wealth or for the death of your enemies, I will give you what you've asked for. And I will give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has had or ever will have. And I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. You see, when Solomon approached God unselfishly, not only did God grant him what he wanted, he granted him everything else too. It's an unselfish heart that moves God. Let me give you one last thought. It's the broken heart that moves God. When I picture Abraham, I don't just picture Abraham just standing there casually talking to God. But I picture him with tears streaming down his face, broken and begging and pleading on behalf of these people for God to show them mercy. It's just something funny that happens to us in our journey with God where where somehow something leads us to believe that it's the words and the kind of prayers that we say that really move God. And we get really showy, right? And the longer we start using these God voices when we pray and our voices drop down another octave, and we, we use words like the most magnificent, holy, righteous. And we, we think that these words and the length of them and the theology of them are, are what really moves God. Or we might think that it's if we say in Jesus' name at the end of it, that whatever we ask, God's going to give it because we ask for it in Jesus' name. But the truth is, is that the words in Jesus' name is about having the posture and the heart of Jesus and 
and asking that prayer in the will of Jesus' name. You see, it's not the words that we use, but it's the passion and the brokenness that we say them in that turns the heart of God. You see, Abraham, he wasn't just praying for people he didn't know. He was praying for Lot, who he did know, and who he loved very much. And as he was crying out to God and tears streaming down his face and saying, 50, 45, 30, 20, 10. God, if there's only 10, will you save them? Please, God, you're so good, please. What if we were that passionate and our hearts were that broken for those that we know that are far from home? That would move the heart of God. Look at Psalms 34, 17, and 18 in your notes. It says, the Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. Isn't that good? The Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He's close. In the spring of 1989 in China, there was a death of a national leader who was bold enough to speak out that the country needed to become a democracy and that they needed free speech. And with his death, um, there were a lot of college students that just thought that his passion and what he was speaking out would be forgotten. So they organized these protests and these rallies, and they implored the government to change. So hundreds and thousands of people organized in late May of 1989 in Tiananmen Square. And thousands of people gathered there, asking the Chinese government, please, we need democracy, we need freedom, we need to be able to live our lives outside of communism. Please listen to us. And of course, the government wasn't going to. And so they sent in their army and they began to shoot. And hundreds and potentially thousands lost their lives. And we don't know the actual number because the the government of China won't release how many people died on, on June 3rd and June 4th. But on June 5th, when morning came, um, the government decided to uh, have kind of a parade, if you will. And these tanks um, outside of Tiananmen Square began to line up. And it, it's as if they were doing a dance, like a celebration that we won. Everybody's been, the, the, the crowds have been dispelled. And I think there's a picture. Um, they began to like, weave right and left and right and left. And all of a sudden, out of the crowd, a young man comes out, not carrying a gun um, or a rifle, but holding two grocery bags. And he stands in front of the lead tank. The tank tries to move to the right, and he stepped in front of him. The tank tried to move to the left, and he stepped in front of him. And um, eventually, the tank decided it couldn't get around him, and so he stopped. On down the line, the second and the third tank stopped too. Here's the deal. is that It wasn't just one or two tanks that you see in this picture. But it was all of them. It was the whole army stopped in their tracks by one person whose heart was broken because of what happened the day before. One young man, broken and distraught, stood in front of an entire army and stopped them. The picture was taken and it went around the world inspiring people to stand up for good and for beauty and for freedom. And here's the deal. We don't know this guy's name. Shortly after this picture, his friends grabbed him and whisked him into the crowd so that he wasn't going to be captured. 
But what it shows us is that there are forces in our lives that are coming against the people we love. People like Lot, who were oppressed and who are about to be destroyed, whose hearts and lives are bent and turned towards destruction. And the only thing that can save them is us standing in front, imploring on behalf of the heart of God for His grace and mercy to be shown. An army is halted. And so can the forces of darkness. So the question today is, how do we become a person that moves the heart of God? Sarah, would you come up? Because we do it with a humble heart. We do it not demanding God to work on our behalf, but realizing that we don't deserve His grace and mercy. Nobody does. But we ask for it nonetheless. It's a persistent heart that, that continually knocks over and over and over again. Not because God forgets and He needs to hear it 50 or 60 times, but because there's no better place for us to be than holding on to the cloak of Jesus. It's the unselfish heart. It says that my life is not about me and my prayers don't always have to be about what I want. But man, when we begin to pray for other people, it turns the heart of God because His heart's unselfish. And it's the broken heart. The question I have for you this morning is, who's your heart broken for? Maybe there's somebody that you dearly love whose life is spiraling towards destruction. That maybe this morning, as we cry out to the Father, you just need to cry out on their behalf. See, what you find is that God hears Abraham. The sad thing is, is that the whole city wasn't saved. But those that loved God, he did go in and he did rescue. Lot came out, his family did. They were saved from destruction of one man imploring on behalf of the Father.